If you would this morning, turn with me again to Genesis chapter 18. Uh, Last week we looked at the first 15 verses of this chapter. uh, And this morning we're going to continue in chapter 18 all the way to the end of chapter 18 there in verse 33. And so if you would, uh, follow along with me where we left off last week in verse 16 as we read uh, the, the last portion of chapter 18 together. So Genesis chapter 18 beginning in verse 16. It says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked." Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. May God bless the reading of his word. The term justice is one that is misunderstood in our day. Justice has become uh, the battle cry of anyone who seeks to bring about affirmation of any type of self-centered, self-absorbed type of ideology that they might cling to. And so in our day, if you have a cause, the call needs to be then for justice. I was reading an article recently that talked about the unjust pay of teachers Now, I know there's several teachers in our place today. I hear some amens from the front row. Uh, If you are a teacher, you, and I'm sure many of us here, would affirm that you are underpaid for the task that you have been charged with. But to label it as unjust 
in the face of great injustices in our day like abortion and sex trafficking just doesn't seem right. Uh, I was also uh, hearing a conversation recently about people who were seeking justice for the left-handed. For those of you here who are left-handed, apparently you were oppressed growing up because you had to use a desk that had the little wooden thing on the right side. Or you were taught to use your right hand seeking justice for left-handed people. Whatever the cause may be in our day, we are calling for justice. And when every problem or setback we face deserves justice, the truth of what justice is becomes misunderstood. It becomes watered down. We no longer understand what true and right and good justice is. So the question before us is, what is justice? Well, the predominant theme of the verses that we just read is that, about justice. And this flows from the previous part of the passage that we looked at last week, the first 15 verses of chapter 18, where we saw that God is able to do whatever he chooses to do according to his will, that he is sovereign. That word sovereign means that he has the right and the wisdom and the power to do all that he pleases. Nothing is too hard for the hand of the Lord, as we saw in verse 14 last week. The question then becomes, in the text that we read this morning, is what God does in his sovereignty just? There's two portions to the passage that we just read. The first portion is there, verses 16 through 21, where God gives this speech. And then the latter part of the the passage that we read, verses 22 through 33, where we see this dialogue between God and Abraham. And in both the speech and in this intercession from Abraham to God, we see this one thing. God is a God of justice. And if we want to know what true justice is, we must first enter into relationship with God through the blood of Christ and know him. He is most certainly the God of justice. Now, how do we know this to be true? How do we know that God is just, that he is a God of justice? Well, the text helps us to answer this question. First, we see here in the passage that we just read that the God of justice is good and right in all that he does. Verse 16 is really a continuation of the story that we looked at last week with the three men who we said were these two angels and the Lord who came to dine and fellowship with Abraham there at his tent and to present this information that Isaac will come within the next year. But there's also a shift here in the story, and you see it there. The writer very eloquently and and precisely transitions the story in verse 17 when he says, the Lord said, or now the Lord said. And so here, over the last several weeks, we've been considering the promise of Isaac and the fact that Sarah is barren and all that has gone with that. But now we shift our focus to chapter 19. And what is about to come in chapter 19? Again, as I mentioned last week, we won't consider Isaac again until later in chapter 21. And so there's this transition in the story from focusing on Isaac to focusing on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19, as we'll consider next week. 
And so these two sections that we see in the passage, the speech of the Lord and then the dialogue between Abraham and God, help us to understand that God is good and right in all he does. First, we can know that God is good and right in all he does because he tells his people of his righteousness and justice. But we also see in this that he demonstrates this for us. So let's look at the text to find this first. Look at verses 17 through 19 where we see what appears to be a contemplation on God's part as to whether or not he should share with Abraham what he is about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. He says there in verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, God does not need to converse with himself to determine what his will is. He knows full well what his will is and what he is going to do. In using this language and presenting this question, what the writer is helping us to see here is the reason why God is revealing to Abraham what he is about to do. Primarily, he's going to reveal this to Abraham because of the relationship, the intimate fellowship that he has with Abraham that we considered last week. God condescended and and he had fellowship and a meal with Abraham to represent this. We see it again here in verse 19 when it says, For I have chosen him, or I know him, your translation might say. God has a special relationship with Abraham. But there's two other things here that the text reveals to us as the reason why God shares with Abraham what he's about to do there in Sodom. The first one is, as the father of the blessing which would come to all of the nations, God wants Abraham to know that his blessing to the nations does not undermine his judgment of the nations. And we'll talk about this more in the passage, the judgment and the mercy of God, but the nations that rebel against this holy, righteous creator God will come under his judgment. The blessing is available to the nations, but God will judge the nations that rebel. So he wants this to be known to Abraham. But secondly, in verse 19, we see that God desires for Abraham to know the way of righteousness and justice so that he might live according to God's righteousness and justice in the land, but also then to pass it on to his children. Look there at verse 19. It says, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord doing what? Righteousness and justice justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him and so as the Lord reveals his ways to his people the expectation is that they would not only live according to his ways but they would also pass it on to the coming generation and so there's clearly an expectation of obedience in this covenant that God has made with Abraham and his offspring And so as his people, as God reveals to us his righteousness and his justice, we are then to conform to his righteousness and act according to his justice. And so Proverbs 21 verse 3 says this, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. We are to be people who champion the righteousness and justice of God in this world because he's revealed these things to us as our covenant God. The second part, though, of the speech shifts to this inspection of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this in verses 20 and 21, and here we see that God is good and right because he demonstrates that he is good and right in what he is about to do. 
And so just like in verse 17, God doesn't have to converse with himself to, ter- to determine what his, his will is. Also here in verses 20 and 21, God doesn't have to investigate the situation to know whether or not Sodom is a city of sin. The writer has already told us that. It's very clear, as we'll see here in a moment, in how Abraham interacts with God. But the writer emphasizes here God's righteous judgment in the language that he uses. So let's, let's consider a few things that we see here. First, it says here in verse 21, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry. And so, God does not have to come down from his throne to see whether or not Sodom is a city of sin. He is um, omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And so, just like we saw at the Tower of Babel earlier in Genesis where God comes down to see, and we talked about there how it's quite ironic that they built this tower to heaven and yet God had to come down just to see it, we also talked about, though, that in coming down, God saw with, that it was true and clear the rebellion of the people's hearts. That what we, is what we see here. In other words, by saying that he is coming down to witness, God is saying that he has a firsthand account of what has happened. His judgments are based on what is true and clear, not on hearsay and assumption. That's what we see here. He, he is not basing this on something he heard from someone else. He knows full well that Sodom is deserving of the judgment that comes in chapter 19. So again, he, he doesn't get his information from hearsay or assumptions. You know what hearsay is. You hear information from someone that's secondhand information, and it's probably just a half-truth, really. And you begin to build your assumptions on the half-truth that you heard from second-hand information and create this reality of what is true about the situation, although you don't have first-hand knowledge of what the situation is. This is how gossip begins. We think we know what's going on in a particular situation, but we've never gone to get a first-hand account to see what is happening. God does not base anything on hearsay. He does everything based on what is true and clear and right. Another thing that we see here that helps us see that he's good and right in all he does is in regards to the outcry. You see the word outcry used twice in verses 20 and 21. It says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Later in verse 21, according to the outcry that has come, this word outcry is a play on the word righteousness. So righteousness and justice are a theme of this passage. And the word outcry is very similar in the word righteousness. And so when he says here the outcry, he's saying the outcry will be what? It's going to be exactly what it is. Sounds like it's going to be that of evil and wickedness. And so the response then will also be appropriate, the righteousness of God. And so it's, it's very similar to when you hear your, uh, your, uh, a sound come from your child's room and it sounds like something terrible has happened. And so you rush up the stairs and you go into the room and in your mind you, you think worst case scenario and you arrive on the scene to maybe find out that it wasn't as bad as you might have thought, or maybe it is the worst case scenario, but you need to respond appropriately. And so we see this then in the word completeness, or my translation there uses the word altogether in verse 21. 
He says, I will go down to see whether they have done all together or completely according to the outcry. Upon investigating Sodom, the deeds were as bad, they were as complete as the cry suggested. You arrive in your child's room to find out that it is the worst case scenario as the cry suggested. And so again, proving that God's judgment in the next chapter is completely legitimate. He is good and right in all that he does. This is summed up in what Abraham asked there in verse 25. At the very end, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? This is the tension of the passage. Again, last week, nothing is impossible with God, but here the question is presented to us, will he be just? Will he do good and righteousness in all that he does? There's a, a movement right now among young evangelicalism, uh, evangelicals in America that's called deconstructionism. And deconstructionism sets out to intentionally challenge young people who grew up in the faith to break down their faith, their profession of faith, with the end goal ultimately being to then uh, walk away from the faith. To say that they no longer believe in Jesus. And so there's things on the internet like hashtag empty the pews. And so this is not a healthy attempt to test scripture according to scripture or test to see if we are in the faith. This deconstructionism movement is intentionally about calling people to break down their faith so that they might leave the faith. And at the heart of deconstructionism is this. It is a call to young people, young evangelicals to come to this conclusion that God is neither right or just in the things that he does. That he is not, in fact, a righteous God. That he is not, in fact, a good God. That he is not, in fact, a just God as the text tells us that he is. And so the truth that God is a God of justice and is good and right and all he does is then replaced with this, I know better. And so you hear young people in this deconstructionism movement saying things like this, I feel like this is true. Or, this is what seems fair to me. In answering that question, what is true justice, we need to understand that a right and correct understanding of justice cannot come by feelings and emotions and what seems fair to us in our fallible human sinful mind. A few weeks ago in our Wednesday night evangelism training, uh, there was a question that was posed in the curriculum of whether or not it is fair that God would allow people who have not heard the gospel to go to hell. So the idea of those who live in the world right now in hard-to-reach places because of governments or geography, that they'll never once hear the gospel. When those people die, will they go to hell? And is that fair if that is the case? And if we're honest today, that, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair to us in our human minds. And yet, church, we do not base what is true 
and what is just and what is right based on what seems fair to us. We base what is true on the word of God alone. And scripture is clear that that none are without excuse. There is no one who is righteous. No one seeks after God. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the reality of scripture then calls us to go to those who have yet to hear. Because for those who have yet to hear the gospel, their fate is set in hell. Unless someone comes to them and preaches to them and they respond in faith to Christ. This is the urgency of missions. Just a side note, right now as we sit in this room, there are billions of people who will live and die and never once hear that Jesus saves. Who will go to them? This is the urgency of the gospel. We must go to those who have yet to hear because their their eternity is set in hell apart from Christ. And so if there's someone who would say that people who die without hearing the gospel, they go to heaven, I I want you to consider this one thing just for a moment. If, If people who die without hearing the gospel, go to heaven. The most wicked thing that we've ever done as humans is missions. Because essentially, when we show up to those people and we tell them of the gospel, we are condemning them to hell. We should have left them alone because their eternity was set. And so what is fair to us might not uh, uh, equal to the truth of God's word. So some other things that we hear in our day about, is it fair Just some hot-button topics for us to consider. Is it fair that God would create me with same-sex desires? Is it fair that God would only allow men to serve as pastors? Is it fair for good people to go to hell? And so a true knowledge of justice that only comes with relationship with the God of justice helps us to answer these questions, resting in this truth. He is right and good in all he does. And we must affirm that he is right and just and good according to his word. The text tells us so. His judgments are trustworthy. And so as his people, we submit to this And we live righteously before him in this world. We are champions of righteousness and justice in this world, regardless of what others may say. We are faithful to be who he has called us to be according to his word. So how do we know that God is just? Well, first, the God of justice is good and right in all he does. But secondly, the text shows us that the God of justice is merciful. The point of the conversation between Abraham and God in verses 22 through 33 is that God is merciful. Just consider a moment again the dialogue and the progression here, verses 22 through 33. Uh, Abraham starts in verse 24 by saying, Lord, what if there's 50 righteous people within the city? Will you destroy it then? And what is God's response? He says there in verse 26, I will spare the whole place for their sake if 50 are found there. And so then Abraham bumps it down by five. What about 45? And God says, I will not destroy destroy it if I find 45. And then in verse 29, Abraham says, okay, what about 40? And God says, I will not do it then. And then he says, suppose 30 are found there. And God says, I will not do it if I find 30. And then it bumps down to 20. And God says, I will not destroy it. And then finally, Abraham's last plea there in verse 32 is suppose ten are found there, and God answered, for the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. 
Abraham knows full well just how evil the city of Sodom is. And we see this in the fact that he starts with 50 and he gradually brings it down to just the 10. How do we see God's mercy, though, in this intercession, in this dialogue between Abraham and God? Well, a few things here. First, we sense and see God's mercy in Abraham's humble approach before God in his intercession. Look at verse 27. He says, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Verse 30, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Verse 31, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Finally, verse 32, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again once this more. He looks at the plight of Sodom and Gomorrah and he he realizes that if God will intervene on their behalf, it's because he is a merciful God. And so he comes before him with this humble confidence that if there are righteous to be found in the city, that God will be merciful. We too should pray with this type of humble confidence when we come to the throne of grace knowing full well that God is the only one who can intervene on our behalf. We also see the mercy of God in the prospect of the remnant, these righteous ones that potentially are within the walls of Sodom. Abraham is praying on behalf of these righteous ones, the remnant that might exist here in Sodom. This harkens back to the flood narrative where God destroys all of humanity with a flood and yet in his mercy he keeps a remnant. He keeps a family for himself. Those who are, 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 have been justified by faith and Noah and his family there. We think then to the uh, future of the story of Israel when they are put in bondage in Babylon and God keeps a remnant, a people for himself and he watches over them and protects them and brings them back to the promised land to rebuild the wall and the temple. Abraham prays on behalf of the righteous, and so it is good for us to pray, too, that the righteous would prevail in this world. But probably the primary way that we see God's mercy in the passage is, in the final thing that we see here, is that he is willing to consider the proposition that Abraham gives him. What is his response to all of these requests? It is always this, if I find ten righteous, I will spare the city. And so through this question and answer time, the righteousness and justice of God is being probed. Again, will you be just? Are you right in what you do? And the clear answer from the intercession is yes, he is. He is. He will show mercy to the righteous and justice to the wicked. He will stay his hand of judgment for the sake of the righteous, but the wicked will perish. So an important question for us to answer here at this point is, who are the righteous and who are the wicked? Well, very simple. The righteous are those who are part of the covenant by faith. As we've already talked about in Genesis several times, those who have been justified by faith are the righteous. Who then are the wicked? It is those who have no part in the covenant because they have no interest in obeying the Lord. So for those of you ladies who attend the the Thursday night Bible study, 
and you've been memorizing Psalm chapter 1, this should sound very familiar to you. Psalm chapter 1 tells us this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Who is the he here? Who is, who is this? This is the righteous one who's been justified by faith. But listen to verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God is most certainly a God of justice. And he is most certainly a God of mercy. And his justice and his mercy are not at odds in his economy. The problem for Sodom is that there are not even ten righteous people to be found within its walls. And next week in chapter 19, they will bear the fruits of unrighteousness and wickedness and evil and rebellion against this just and merciful God. If someone is standing in a courtroom and they are found guilty of a crime, what must a good and just judge do? They must convict, according to the law, the crime that was committed. Regardless of the, how the one who is convicted of the crime responds to this um, de- declaration of punishment. Whether the, the person says, well, that's not fair, judge. This is going to mess up my life, my family, my career. My life's going to be ruined. This is not fair. Maybe the person who's been convicted of the crime would say, but but judge, I'm a good person. I've spent all of my life being a good person. This was just once that I made this mistake. Maybe they they say, uh, judge, since then, I'm a changed person. I've turned my life around. I will never do that again. What must a good, just judge do according to the law? He must punish, bring punishment where the crime has been committed. God looks on us and our sin and our rebellion. And as a good and righteous judge, he must bring justice. Justice must be had for. If an earthly judge can bring good justice, how much more so can the creator, holy God of the universe, bring justice when his law is broken? And so you might say to yourself, Pastor, where is mercy found in that? Mercy is found at the cross where God pours out his righteous judgment on his son in our place. Christ taking the judgment and the punishment and the penalty, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve in our sin as lawbreakers in our place. And when we believe in his atoning work at the cross, we can be saved. So the mercy of God is found in this. While we were yet sinners, while we stood condemned against God as lawbreakers, Christ died for 
us. He went to the cross in our place. He bore the the shame and the wrath of God for wretched sinners like you and I. Because justice had to be revealed and manifested. And so God doesn't just sweep our sin under the rug. That's not the message of the gospel, dear ones. The judge in the courtroom doesn't just say, you know what, let's just forget that this happened. You go on living your life. No, God must have his justice. And the beauty of the gospel is that Christ goes to the cross and he takes that in our place. And so we see the just mercy of God on full display at the cross of Christ. Abraham looked out over the prospect of Sodom. You look there at verse 16, it said, The men sent out, set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. So you can imagine Abraham standing there with the Lord and these two angels and looking out over Sodom. And the prospect was grim. Abraham knew how wicked Sodom was. And as he looked out, he, he's, he's probably thinking to himself, all hope is lost. And I think for a lot of us today, we can relate to that. As we look out at the prospect of the world that we live in today, we say, all hope is lost. We live in an evil, wicked day where we see churches affirming homosexuality and abortion by distorting the word of God, that that, that they say that they can affirm these things are good by the word of God, and we see the wickedness that surrounds us, and, and so many things. We are standing on the edge of a cliff looking out over the prospect of Sodom and Gomorrah in our day. And the temptation for us is to just sit by idly, or or build a cabin in the woods. And to just live our days there and just let this whole thing pass by or to troll people on the internet. But may we heed the example that's set by Abraham for us today as we look out over the prospect of Sodom. And may we intercede before the Lord. That his righteousness and his justice would reign in this world. And so it's good and right for us to pray for righteousness to reign in the land. It's good and right for us to pray that God's people would be spared from harm. To plead with God on behalf of the lost, but ultimately that we would pray for his will to be done and his kingdom to come on this earth as it is in heaven. You know, when the application of the sermon is to pray, a lot of times we nod in agreement, we say amen to that, but Dear church, are you praying? Are you interceding on behalf of this city and this state and this country? Are you interceding on behalf of your family and your home? Are you interceding on behalf of missionaries and the church throughout the world? Are you interceding on behalf of the unreached peoples of the world? We must be people who pray and intercede as, as Abraham did, that the Lord would have his way in this world. And so pray for your leaders, pray for your church, pray for your families. At the beginning of this year, we started a prayer emphasis in our church. I'm so thankful for all of the ways that our teams are encouraging prayer among their groups and their teams. And one of the primary ways that we've encouraged prayer this year is by a weekly prayer guide. 
And so we're over halfway through the year, and I would encourage you to go back to that if you've stopped. Each week we pray for uh, things like our city and our, our homes and missions and other things. May we be people who pray for God's kingdom to come in this world. You know, we tend to, uh, we tend to complain, myself included, when we look at the prospect of the world that we live in today. And we say to ourselves, what does the world come to? My hope this morning is that we would be encouraged by the passage to understand that we are to be people who pray for God's righteousness and justice to manifest itself in this world, but that we would also be people who live and champion God's righteousness and justice in and through our lives. We would teach it faithfully to our children, but ultimately that we would rest in this supreme truth. God is a God of justice, and he will have his way. So may we be faithful as we rest in that great truth. Let's pray.